the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to strike down the affirmative action criteria shaping the admissions programs at Harvard and UNC is likely to have reverberations on the makeup of future college classes across the country. And at the same time, there is a growing public backlash to college admissions practices that promote early decision by potential students, as well as reward applicants for being so-called legacies. To discuss this broad picture in New York, we're joined in the Capitol Press Room by State Senator Andrew Gennardis, a Brooklyn Democrat who sponsors legislation addressing the use of legacy preferences in higher education. Welcome back to the show, Senator. Thanks for having me, So what's your reaction to the Supreme Court ruling that effectively struck down explicit race-based criteria to inform college admissions policies? Well, you know, it's it's deeply unfortunate because we know that this is going to have a tremendous impact, negative impact on the future of higher education, especially for students from historically disadvantaged communities, first generation students and the like, because affirmative action you know, has shown over the last 50 years or so that it has been incredibly successful in creating educational opportunity for students who would otherwise not have opportunities to pursue their dreams, their ambitions, their, to go to college. So uh, it's going to have a real big impact uh, moving forward. And I think the challenge for all of us now who care about this issue is to figure out how we can pivot from here and say, well, what else can we be doing to make it easier for students to get into schools, to be able to go to college, be able to pursue that dream without the the hindrance uh, of past historical inequities, without the hindrance of, you know, the lack of resources, the lack of privilege, all of those things. And I think that's the next frontier in the higher education fight right now. Well, thinking about that pivot, SUNY Chancellor John King says there are other criteria that the state's public colleges and university will consider, which might be a stand-in for race in some ways and will help ensure a diverse student body across the SUNY system. So could that ultimately be a more effective way of helping marginalized communities than explicitly using race as a key factor for, I guess, tilting the scale in college admissions? Absolutely. Let's just be clear, you know, race, you know, for the last 25 something years, um, race has never been allowed by the Supreme Court to be the sole determining factor to determine someone's admission into a school. What affirmative action allowed for was the consideration of race as one of a multi-factored criteria approach in in deciding which students to give acceptance to a college or to a university. Um, So it's never been the single dispositive uh, factor. It's really been part of a more comprehensive review or approach. But now that that can no longer be part of a college's analysis, I think Chancellor King is right. You know, there's lots of other ways we can get at this. Socioeconomic status is certainly one of the biggest and best ways we can do that. A lot of folks who talk about this issue, if if you chart out socioeconomic status of students and you chart out their racial background of students, that, that overlap is quite significant. It's not mutually exclusive, but it is quite significant. So in essence, we will be getting to the same population of students that were otherwise being helped by different affirmative action plans. But even that is not enough because for too many colleges and universities across the country, and frankly, too many of them here in New York, only have a certain number of seats open for general admission students or for otherwise specialized admissions. So many of these schools right now have slots earmarked either for students of alumni, students of donors, athlete students, or students who are applying for early decision. So the, the pool of available seats is really small. In addition to 
considering other factors like socioeconomic status, zip code, things like that. We have to really look very carefully at how college admissions are structured to allow more students of certain backgrounds, more privileged backgrounds, give them a leg up in admissions relative to other students who would otherwise qualify for you know, special consideration, whether it's from race or economic status or what have you. Well, I'm going to have to make you the co-host of this show because you're great at these uh, transitions to my next questions, which are revolving around the legislation you sponsor, which is billed as the Fair College Admissions Act. How would this impact legacy admissions, uh, which kind of speak to that issue of certain people benefiting from who they know and what they're connected to? There was never a point in which legacy admissions can be morally defensible when it relates to college admissions. This is the idea that someone is given admission to a school because their parent went there, their grandparent went there, an aunt, uncle, they have some other type of family connection to that school. There is no way of defending that in a society that we hope or we aspire to be a meritocratic society where everyone is able to get into places or succeed on their merits. Legacy admissions kind of flies in the face of that. So what we've been proposing to do, and, and I came out and I said this last year, anticipating the Supreme Court's decision. I mean, we introduced this bill a year ago saying that the Supreme Court is likely to strike down affirmative action for the use of race, but they're going to allow colleges to still cherry pick students based solely on who their parents are because there's a family connection. And that to me is affirmative action just for privileged kids. It has no basis whatsoever in our college admissions landscape today or ever, but especially now. This is one of the most exclusive practices and tactics that colleges use in order to give preferential treatment to one group of students over another. And in this context, in this environment, when we are trying to think about ways of expanding access to education, we shouldn't be allowing schools to earmark 10, 20, 30 percent of their class slots just to children of donors, children of alumni and other folks like that. It should be open to everybody. Would your legislation apply to public and private institutions? It would absolutely apply to public and private institutions. Fortunately, with very few exceptions, nearly every public institution, to our knowledge, does not use legacy admissions. Uh, a handful do, maybe for specialized programs, or as part of, they ask the question as part of a, of a holistic application review but it's not a dispositive factor. But we do see many colleges and universities on the private side in New York, about 70 by our count, that do ask about a family connection, ask about an alumni connection, and do factor that into their admissions criteria, which we just think is totally indefensible. And so I think every college university, in the wake of the, the fair college admissions cases from the Supreme Court, really have to look and think long and hard, what are they doing to expand access and not restrict it? And legacy, I think, is top of that list because there is, like, again, zero defense for it in, a, in an age where we tell everyone, if you work hard, you will have a chance to succeed. Oh, by the way, if your parent is so-and-so, we're going to give you bonus points on top of that. It doesn't make sense. And your bill has a interesting response for colleges that are deemed to be out of compliance with this measure if it was to take effect. Can you talk about uh, the civil penalties from colleges that uh, might be found to be violating this in the future? Sure. So, you know, any any college or university that wants to continue considering or using legacy as a basis for criteria 
which again is wholly indefensible. But if a college says, hey, we need this because this is the core of our identity, we would levy a 10% assessment on the gross tuition revenue that that school receives. And that that assessment would be funneled into this New York State Tuition Assistance Program, which is New York's, uh, is a phenomenal program that New York offers to provide tuition assistance to low-income New Yorkers who are trying to go to college. TAP is a phenomenal program. Every year in the budget, we always try to increase TAP because we know that it is a proven way of helping students pay for college, first-generation students, first in their family to go to school, immigrant students, students of color, students of marginalized backgrounds who don't have access to wealth or means. And so we are going to assess these schools who want to continue to be exclusive and exclusionary and make them pay so that we can, with every other school in the state, be able to fund more low-income scholarships. So that's our proposal. And in fact, I just saw yesterday there is a similar bill that was just introduced in the Massachusetts legislature that would do basically the same thing that we proposed doing last year. So uh, I'm actually really excited and glad to see that other states are now thinking about legacy in this way and that they are also thinking about how do we use this moment to be able to fund opportunities for students of low-income backgrounds or other types of backgrounds who don't have access to wealth, privilege, or money. And everyone's kind of coming to the same conclusion. So I'm glad to say we got there first. Now we have to make it law. Well, finally, on the issue of legacies and preferential treatment for, for legacies, would you want to see this type of policy extended to other campus activities like access to fraternities? Because I wonder whether someone like uh, Kent Dorfman would have been able to make it into the Delta Chow Chai House at Faber College without his brother's experience at the fraternity before him. Whether or not you make it into a uh, fraternity or sorority does not make or break your access to an education. Uh, it might, you know, maybe on the margins uh, uh, influence how you experience college, but it doesn't take away from the fact that you are earning a college degree. That's the core of what we're talking about here. That's the essence of what this is. Too many students are being shut out right now. They're not, they're not gaining access to colleges. They're being left out of some of the best and most prestigious and exclusive and exclusionary schools in our state and also the country, um, all because of someone else's parent. And so I want to start there. Let's make that policy. Let's make that a reality. And then if, if students are clamoring to say, hey, now that we're here, we want more access to fraternities, I'm happy to have that conversation in the future. Well, I appreciate you answering a question about a fictional character from the movie Animal House. Turning to another component that was originally in your bill, this idea of prohibiting early decision policies. What's wrong with potentially rewarding early commitments by colleges and universities? So let me be very clear. We're not, we are not... Um, penalizing early commitments. And in fact, there are two different types of admissions that exist on the early decision bucket. First is early decision, as known, and that is when a student applies to one school earlier with the expectation that they will get a response earlier. And should they receive an acceptance, they are committed to going to that school. And they have to make that commitment before they know what their financial aid package will be. And then the other type of admissions policy or practice in this same bucket is early action in which a student can still apply early to a school, still make that one choice, but does not have to go make that commitment until they get their financial aid package. So I'm all for early action because I think that, that actually empowers students to be able to make the best decision for themselves. The problem or the concern with early decision is that 
it, when you dig it, it on, on the surface, it looks to be innocuous. It looks to be, you know, helping students. But when you look at the types of students that are being helped, they tend to be students who come from private schools, students who come from more privileged backgrounds, students who have don't have to worry about making a financial calculation as to whether or not they can afford to go to school or afford to go to this school versus another school, who receive sophisticated college counseling. They have counselors at their school saying, hey, if you want to go to Georgetown, if you want to go to Columbia, if you want to go to Union or whatever, your best shot is to do it this way. But that shuts out so many students who don't have access to the counseling, the guidance, or the means to be able to make that decision without even having them think about twice about it. So when you look at the at who's applying early decision, it, tw- twice as many students come from the wealthier zip codes as, um, uh, as poorer zip codes, and you are four times more likely to apply early decision if you go to a private school versus a public school. So in this landscape, we should be looking overall uh, at how we can reduce barriers make it easier for more students from all backgrounds to have the same shot and opportunity for educational excellence. And I think early decision bears looking at. In some cases, it might be fruitful or helpful. In many other cases, it might actually be just as exclusive as legacy. So we want to you know, take a deep look at that and figure out the best way to move forward here so that no student is shut out from opportunity because they didn't know, they weren't told, or they couldn't make that commitment without having anything twice about it. The language in the original version of this bill addressing early decisions appears to be missing from the subsequent amended version of the bill. Is that a correct reading of the text? And if so, why the change? So as we were embarking on conversations uh, throughout the legislative process, it became clear to me that uh, we still have more work to do to make the case about early decision uh, to members of the legislature, as well as some schools reached out proactively and said, you know, we understand the concern. Let's let me tell you, let's tell you how we use early decision. And here's our data. Here's our stats. So I think, you know, some of the assertions that I made just a few minutes ago apply globally. You know, when you take a macro look at all early decision applicants, there might be more nuance uh, school by school that we want to take a deeper look at. And that I'm, I, I'm eager to take a deeper look at. But for now, I think, you know, they're both exclusive practices. Legacy is the more pernicious of the two. Um, and so we felt like we could move on legacy right away, again, anticipating that the Supreme Court was going to do what it did. And I think that's the first step in this process. But my interest and my commitment to ensuring a fair college admissions landscape for all students is not going to end just by passing legacy, uh, a ban on legacy and admissions next year. Well, finally, what do you think about banning the use of standardized tests for consideration of admission to college or universities, since there are critiques about the usefulness of those tests as a metric for judging students. Yeah, I think that there's certainly a lot of valid concerns about relying on standardized testing um, that I share that I, I think are really, really important. Uh, the only you know orange flag I'd wave or yellow flag I'd wave is that as you move away from less objective measures like a test score, and let's just set aside the acknowledgement that the test scores themselves can be problematic for many reasons. But once you start moving away from objective criteria like that, then the process becomes more subjective, which then means that there are more opportunities to disfavor students from certain backgrounds, skip over or look over students from certain backgrounds, uh, especially students who might not have the 
the perfect application, the perfect resume, the you know eighteen extracurriculars a year type of um, type of background. So uh, I, I'd, I'd worry about going too far towards a subjective analysis, but also recognize that the current system that uses the test scores are not perfect and that there's a lot of work to be done to rectifying that. The answer has got to be somewhere in between. And uh, I think that that is a job for us to kind of figure out moving here on forward. Well, we've been speaking with State Senator Andrew Gennardis. He is a Brooklyn Democrat. Senator, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Is your business, agency, or service interested in delivering your message to more than two dozen radio stations statewide carrying Capital Press Room? If so, visit capitalpressroom.org to contact our underwriting team.